I'm Tannis McDonald. Welcome to Watershed Writers Podcast. For this episode, we sit down with Tuscarora writer, performer, and publisher, Janet Rogers. She's come home to Six Nations of the Grand River after decades away. As the National Truth and Reconciliation conversation continues, we listen as Janet speaks of writing as a response to the work of her forebears. She reads from her new book, Ego of a Nation, about personal and political power. And Janet also talks about how she brings joy to engage readers, saying, and I quote, reconciliation is not something you read about, it's something you do. We're glad to have you join us. This podcast series is for readers and for writers, for people interested in how writing works and why it's vital to where and how we live. We record in the Grand River Watershed region, the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We feature interviews with local novelists, poets, playwrights, and essayists, and offer a showcase for a community of nationally known writers, as well as writers who are just getting started. What do we You can find more about future podcast episodes on our website, watershedwriters.ca, on our Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast channels. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Watershed Writers, we are sharing our anticipation, excitement, and curiosity. We are listening local, talking global with you, our audience. On this program, we listen locally and think globally. And this series would not be complete without a chance to listen to and think with an Indigenous writer who makes Six Nations home. On this episode of Watershed Writers, my guest is the multi-talented Janet Marie Rogers. Janet is a Tuscarora writer, performer, and publisher who grew up at Six Nations of the Grand River. She has lived all over Canada and the United States and has, in the last 18 months, returned home to Six Nations. I first saw Janet perform a long time ago. In fact, about 20 years ago, when Janet and I were both living on the West Coast in Victoria, British Columbia. I saw Janet when she performed as part of the James Bay Inn reading series. We'll talk a little bit about those early years in Janet's career and about how she's crisscrossed the country as a writer in residence. She was the Poet Laureate in Victoria from 2012 to 2014. She was the Eastern Comma Writer-in-Residence at North House by the Rare Charitable Reserve near Cambridge in 2017. And she is currently the Writer-in-Residence at Hamilton's McMaster University. Now, Janet is also a much sought after speaker. And in 2017, she visited my course on the creative process where she showed a number of her stunning videos that she's made with Two Row Media. She also spoke eloquently about working with Tsleil-Waututh Chief Dan George's famous 1967 speech, Lament for Confederation. Janet engaged us all in a discussion of writing as a response to the work of your forebears and asked readers to consider an indigenous perspective on the 150th anniversary of Confederation. She demonstrated by reading her response. And I'm going to quote two of my favorite lines from that piece. Ah, Canada, 
do not slip me the tongue and call it a French kiss. And also reconciliation is not something that you read about, it's something you do. So those two lines should indicate to you that Janet does not think that reading is a passive experience. And in addition, she has shown her commitment to the indigenous literary community by starting a publishing house called Ojisto Publishing. The press is named for a poem written by another Haudenosaunee woman writer from Six Nations of the Grand River, Pauline Johnson. Janet Rogers is the author of seven books, including Totem Poles and Railroads, Red, Erotic, and her latest book titled Ego of a Nation, which she wrote when she was writer in residence at the University of Alberta in 2019. Now I've read Ego of a Nation and I recommend it highly, especially if you're looking for a book to celebrate April as Global Poetry Month. But you don't need to take my word for it. Here's Griffin Poetry Prize winner, Liz Howard, on what she thinks about Janet's ego of a nation. And I quote, from within a time of fear, racism and misunderstanding, Janet Rogers offers us an invitation to the intimate and ancestral depths of a mind expertly attuned to song. This is a voice that speaks to us all as treaty people, without a doubt, among the most direct unrelenting and important poetic offerings of our time. That's Liz Howard. And there's more praise from past parliamentary poet, Fred Waugh, who notes, within the uplifting reverberations of this poetry, Janet Rogers reminds us that love and patience are necessary citizens of the home we all want. And musician and author, Tanya Tagak has the last word. She writes, Janet's work reads like she wrote it on truth serum. It sure does. March 17, 1906. My dear Mr. High, our fond friend Chief Kepler writes me that he has spoken with you regarding further negotiations concerning the wampum belt, and as you told me, your offer stood open. I am presuming that you are still interested in securing my treasured specimen. Treasured specimen. Treasured specimen. Briefly, I find myself in a much better financial position than I had hoped, and my offers from England are most encouraging. So in thinking it all over, I have concluded to place this proposition before you. Will you purchase the belt out and out, giving me $500 for it, and the open possibility of repurchasing it for myself at any time within two years, at an advanced figure, you to name the advance. So I will know just where I stand in the matter. You will quite appreciate the fact I know that I do not want to let the belt go completely from my possession at a figure I do not think its full historical value, and I want the opportunity of regaining it again after I get well established in England. Will you agree to this proposition? I would like to hear from you at the very earliest date. The foregoing address will find me, and as I am going to Johnstown, New York to give a recital there early in April, I will take the belt across the line and express it to you from there, should you care to fall in with my suggestion. As I am arranging to sail within less than a month's time, I would like to hear from you, if convenient. With my most kindly remembrance of our pleasant talk and meeting, I am yours faithfully, E. Pauline Johnson. Welcome Janet Rogers to Watershed Writers. 
Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. Well, you are most welcome to be here. And I am excited to have you because, you know, I, I think I first saw you perform 20 years ago in Victoria at the James Bay Inn, right? The James Bay Reading Series. And so I'm really interested in talking to you about sort of living all over Canada as a writer in residence and thinking about Indigenous writing as you live all over, but particularly because you are originally from Six Nations of the Grand River and you've just moved back in the last 18 months, is it? Yeah, like that. Yeah. In the summer of 2019, I came back home. That was wonderful timing. It's been wonderful timing. And I do believe in, you know, divine timing and coming back here is certainly proven to resemble that. So uh, what I mean by that is, you know, it was a nice gradual separation from the West Coast where I was living as a guest on Coast Salish territory in Victoria, British Columbia uh, for 25 years. Dennis, I'm so glad that you mentioned the James Bay Reading Series because that is really, really where I got my start. It really is. And probably many people uh, got their start there. You know, it was like a welcoming space. It was a, a very encouraging and supportive space for new writers. And I certainly learned a lot from being in that space with other writers. That was very much a school within itself. So I really, I credit the James Bay in reading series often when I speak to new writers and I'll say, really what you need to do as a new writer is get out there and read. I hate to tell you that, I hate to break the news to you, but um, it really is an important part of becoming a writer and discovering and exploring what your voice is, getting up there in front of people and presenting. So the James Bay Inn is, is where I got my start. It really is. I'm happy to hear you mention that. That is a great memory for me. And so what's it like to be back home? Because you were on the West Coast for um, 25 years, and I, I know you've also yeah. lived really all over the country, but it's been a, a homecoming, and you're talking about divine timing for that homecoming. Yeah. Can you say yeah. more? I was kind of just done with Victoria, and I don't mean that in any kind of negative way at all. It was just I had I felt I gave everything I could to that uh, territory and, you know, enjoyed myself while I was there, certainly became a writer when I was there. So it was a good, you know, a good exchange. And I felt like, ah, this phase is done. I think I'm ready to come home. And throughout my time living on the West Coast as a guest, I created projects that would help bring me back home. And so every time I realized, like, well, every time I did come back home to Six Nations to make media or do other, you know, projects, collaborate, it was something that I really, really valued and really kind of missed. I realized I missed being back home. And I never thought, I mean, when you live on the West Coast, it's, it's very, it's like paradise out there. You know, the right. weather's great. You've got the ocean, you've got the Olympic mountain range. I mean, it's just so beautiful. I never thought I'd be coming back home, but there is nothing like being home. And then of course, now it's, it's a different experience because I really am like everybody else grounded in my home territory, but that's where the gardening comes in. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm starting some things indoors right now. And um, it's all very exciting. It's, very, it's a wonderful part about being home for sure. <laughs> that's great. Now, I know you've just mentioned coming back home to make media. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about you as a kind of multimedia writer and performer. And I know I've seen and our listeners can see 
a variety of videos that you've made of your poems over the last 10 years. And I know that's not a new medium to you, but you've been working with Jackson Two Bears at Two Row Media for, for quite some time. I'd be interested in hearing about your style and your intentions for those videos. Have they changed over the last decade? And what is, what is it about giving a poem a visual medium that changes from, say, uh, making it a spoken word piece? Yeah, I, I can't say that the style um, has changed much since I started creating video poetry. And the process certainly hasn't changed. The process has always been everything starts on the page. Everything starts on the page. The idea, the poem, most definitely. And then moving that into an audio recording, just voice, and then adding that music. And then we go to the visuals from there. So that's been the process all throughout. I and we have become more adept at that process. And so we can kind of like, you know, put these things out with a lot less um, stress or, or, you know, like that creative stress that goes along with, oh, I don't know what I'm doing here and let's see what happens because we're, we work definitely much more intentionally now. And Jackson Two Bears, who you've mentioned is my collaborative partner and has been um, on a few of those video poems, thank goodness, because he's the tech guy who's got the skills and to pay the bills. He comes from a, a, a video and audio mashup background, and uh, Jackson is from Six Nations as well. He really landed on his feet after leaving Victoria as well. Uh, he's teaching studio arts and media arts over at the University of Lethbridge. So my brother and I, and I call him my brother, we're not, you know, biologically related that we know of. So again, we made these projects that would help bring us back home so that we could like learn more about ourselves, learn more about our culture, learn more about, you know, how we fit in um, as artists within this community. So he settled in Lethbridge and he's, you know, he's doing really quite well over there with some um, shirk appointments and things. Before the pandemic, it was like he got to come and stay at my house, which was so nice because before we were always just like, you know, renting a spot here, there to keep us working on the territory. But now, you know, he, he's got a home base here and he certainly, you know, started to make a, we started to make a studio out of my basement and he left me with some equipment, thank goodness. So I'm able to carry on making media and sending, sending files his way because we are still collaborating on a bigger project, but now it's, it's halted, it's been halted. What's the difference between making a kind of video poem and relying on visual performance, which is uh, in many of these videos is, is quite like, like acting, yeah. uh, as opposed to doing a, a kind of a different kind of visual performance in a spoken word piece? Yeah, it's been really fun. I'll tell you, when I started, and I started doing spoken word at the James Bay Inn, and I started, when I started doing that, it wasn't out of a love for being on stage and doing doing that. It was really nerve wracking for me as I, but I know like for some spoken word artists and definitely people who compete in slam competitions, they, they cannot wait to get on stage and show off and be all that, you know. But for me, it was really, really nerve wracking. The memory work was nerve wracking. Again, discovering, you know, what it means to have stage presence was another, another thing that I kind of just developed and, and kept in my bundle, as they say. And then taking that into film was just another way to expand upon what we enjoy doing. Performance art is something that I really have a deep love for. And I'm, and again, I'm still, you know, discovering what that is and then marrying it 
with the poetry was just, you know, my way of doubling down on my joy. And, you know, so it was, it was just a way to, you know, have fun on top of having fun, putting it to film creates a different audience where that work lives. And so that was a joy. And I, and I have to say, you know, I'm really, really feel very fortunate that places like the Imaginative Film and Media Festival has embraced the audio work and has embraced the video poetry work. They've programmed those things into their festivals a few times now, and it's not being seen as separate. You know, it's, we're not being siloed into these, you know, different genres. Everything is kind of living together now, and it's really quite a big joy. Oh, that's great. And I love that doubling down on your joy. <laughs> that's terrific. Now, I'm interested in, you know, when you're talking about making projects that would bring you home, was one way you said it, but also just the general work of being a writer and making projects for yourself. And you did a number of uh, sessions as a writer in residence for various libraries and universities and other uh, kinds of institutions. And I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in hearing what a writer in residence does and this idea of making your own projects and making your own work. Can you speak to some of the residencies that you had and uh, the kind of work that you embarked on which might have been kind of site specific, having to do with being in a particular place or a project that you wanted to embark on just because you wanted to. Yeah, there's there's um, all kinds of different residencies, and I've certainly done my share of all of them. Uh, so there, there's the residency where you apply as an artist and you're there and it's self-directed. Uh, I've done that a few times at the BAMP Center for the Arts, which I totally encourage people to check to see what they have to offer and it's going to be you know new programming after they reset post-covid restrictions and and things like that because I didn't attend um, academia I didn't attend an academic institution to learn to do what I do uh, these residencies have proven to be that training ground for me and um, again, just learning from other artists, other writers, other performance artists, other media artists, just, you know, kind of spending time and valuable collaboration with people who work in mediums other than myself has been, has been how I have come up uh, and expanded on, you know, what I do as a, as, a, as a writer and a poet. And then there's the residencies that are supported by the academic institutions. Thank goodness those things exist because they really do help keep one employed, uh, number one, first and foremost. And then number two, you get to, I mean, and I have gotten the opportunity to live in those communities like the University of Alberta was, uh, well, the current, you know, writer in residence uh, position I hold until the end of April uh, is with McMaster University and the Hamilton Public Library. And in every residency that I've held with an institution, I've, I've been so fully supported by the resources and by the staff and the professors at these institutions that it's just been an absolute joy. I've had absolute wonderful and positive experiences at every residency that I've been a part of. So prior to the residency now that I'm holding, I was at the University of Alberta for nine months uh, doing the full term residency there and in, in Edmonton Treaty uh, 6, so no, 6 territory. That was wonderful. I created a uh, film while I was there through Tell a uh, Story Hive and consulted with the local writers. And that is always a, 
something that I really I find really fulfilling in the residencies. I get to meet with other writers. I get to see what they're writing. I, we get to talk about story, and to me, that's just it's so rewarding, so fulfilling. Part of what I do, you know, in the residencies. Um, because it, it's one thing to be in the territory, but it's another thing to have the opportunity to connect with the people, you know, and that's just, it just makes it so valuable. It's, it's really one of the ways that you create wonderful memory and that you can bring forward into the next, you know, the next place, the next experience that you have as a writer. Tennis. Before that, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the oh, Institute, wow. yeah, Institute of American Indian Art for two months in uh, July and August. And so, so I was really, really fortunate for a couple of years there. I was having residencies that were happening, you know, back to back and I could just like kind of flow. And so that was, that created this wonderful time where I got to kind of, again, gently remove myself from the West Coast and be on the road and, and before reestablishing myself here on my territory. So yeah, you know, I, I got to come home with crates and crates of experience and crates and crates of wonderful resources collected along the way. And hopefully, you know, I can, I'm applying those here in a good way uh, back home. And, and I certainly, you know, really want to support the artists that are here with, with all of that, the skills, experiences um, that I've collected along the way. And I think that that's happening, although, you know, COVID's really, really messing it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. To, put it, to put it lightly. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm very pleased to hear you uh, you comment on the kind of connections that you were making during these residencies in in the communities and and of course part of those those kinds of positions is that you connect with younger writers younger writers in the community or people who just come to you as part of your job as writer in residence and say so how do I how do I do this how do I be a writer how do I make art. Right. And not as a, you know, as, as a foolish question. I mean, those are really good questions. Most yeah. of us are, are struggling with that for a long time. Uh, so you meet uh, younger writers or just people who are at the very beginning of their, their writer, writing career. Now, I want to talk about your, uh, your latest endeavors, start as, starting a publishing press. And I noted that in a variety of interviews with media, you have referred to yourself as a literary auntie. Yes. in terms of mentoring uh, young Indigenous writers. And I want to know more about this, this idea of a literary auntie as, as you construe it. What kind, of, what kind of auntie are you? It's, it's just, you know, the work that I, that I have been doing as a writer in residence. Like I, I'm here to hear from local authors and coming back home and having the opportunity to learn who's out there in terms of like the, a writing community in the Hamilton area, in the Six Nations area, in the surrounding area, including Kitchener and Waterloo and, and, and places like that, Dundas, certainly. I get the backstage look or inside view of what's who's out there and what they're working on. And I have to say that in that capacity, I'm just so excited to learn about who who's out there and what they're working on. In my position again as as this auntie person, uh, I get to kind of you know cheerlead and encourage and share uh, what I know with um, with the writers that are coming up. In terms of coming home and starting a publishing house press, that was always part of the plan about coming home. So. The fact that uh, I've started that and I and I identified, I was able to identify the first author that I'll be publishing 
Janet, I see by the website of Ogisto Publishing that you are working right now on a new book by Don Cheryl Hill called Memory Keeper, and it's a collection of short memoirs. Can you tell me a little bit about that book uh, and its position as the press's new book? Yeah, I met Dawn through my position as the writer in residence at McMaster University. She had approached me uh, with some of these stories to say, hey, would you give these a look and give me some feedback? And I recognized that this is, this is a person who is naturally gifted as a writer because her style was just so charming and so accessible. And yet at the same time, vivid in terms of the visuals that and how she was writing. The collection includes stories that are very traumatic, uh, some stories that are hilarious, some stories that just really have the ability to throw the reader back in time to a uh, time in the Six Nations community when, you know, it was really quite different than it is today, when it was very much more folksy, when it was like safer, when it, it wasn't so populated and so on and so forth. And to me, had, you know, her stories that had the ability to bring me back into this time was a place where I just wanted to stay. It really, the descriptions were almost fictional, you know, like it, it, it really spoke of a time when, yeah, you could run across the field to your neighbor and, but you had to look out for the dog because their dog was wild and, you know, things like this and past the white man's dotted line. The stories that she shares from her childhood are absolutely hilarious. The visuals and the nuances within that story really bring you back to a time in a childhood. Well, when I was growing up, like in the 60s um, and the 70s, when this territory was very different than it is today. Children could run around. Children could play on discarded tires and discarded mattresses and discovering how to entertain themselves in a very different time. And these stories just beguiled me, you know, and I just thought, oh, let's publish this and let's put it out. Let's share these stories with a bigger audience. And, but at the same time, she was writing these stories because she herself was looking uh, for a way to process um, her relationship with her mother, who was a residential school survivor, having been accosted, uh, stolen away from her own family to attend the Mush Hole, otherwise known as the Mohawk Institute. And then discovering as an adult uh, child uh, within her family that she couldn't even ask her mother about these, um, that part of her, her history and her reality because her mother had, you know, began to disassociate uh, when the, that topic came up. And so I thought, you know what, people need to know this. This is intergenerational experience from a residential school survivor that maybe a lot of people don't know about how, you know, how far those ripples go from, from that horrific experience. And so I thought it was dealt with in a good and a healthy way. And the fact that Dawn Cheryl Hill is a full-time working um, social worker and that she, you know, she's very good at what she does, that we decided to include some of the worksheets that can help people process the horror and the trauma that are written into the stories that she shares in this collection. And I thought, yes, let's offer that to the readers. Let's not just leave them uh, with that horror and that trauma, um, but let's help, let's give them some proactive ways to process those stories as well. 
I think that's a great idea. I think that's something that would very much benefit um, the readers of, of, of Memory Keeper. Uh, I often have uh, beginning readers ask me, not only do they, uh, how do I read this book, but how do I recover from reading this book? Right. And uh, yeah, sounds like a, a great inclusion. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, it's something that, you know, part of what she does in her life now uh, that she can offer back to the readers. So, yeah, I think, and, and it also, I think, you know, hopefully as a publisher, I'm thinking ways, uh, you know, to help the book stand out as well, so that, you know, to give her stories the best opportunity to find the widest possible audience around. So, you know, offering that kind of is, is a different thing. I haven't seen that with other, other um, residential school uh, memoir stories, so. Great. But we're still going to offer the, the physical paper book and then, you know, add on from there. Now, I wanted to hear uh, the title of Memory Keeper, and I always also know that we haven't said the name of your press yet. Ojisto Publishing. Actually, Ojisto is the title of a, a story written by E. Pauline Johnson, who's my girl from Six Nations. And, you know, she was uh, the height of her poetry career was late 1800s, early 1900s born right here on Six Nations and her family home where she was born still stands as Chiefswood House on in Chiefswood Park. And so that's just a, you know, two kilometers away from where I currently live on Six Nations. And, you know, I wave hello to Pauline every time I drive by her place, driving down Chiefswood Road. Yeah, she put in Mohawk poetry on the map way back in the day. This particular poem or story from Pauline called Ojisto, which actually translates to white star or bright shiny star in the Mohawk language. And the story itself speaks of a female heroine who saves herself in this story being captured by a rival tribe, but she finds a way to kill her captor and run back on the on his horse to her man and her brave back in her own village. I love the idea of the bright star and it's almost like it's, I think we're talking about the North Star, to be honest, you know, a guiding star, a star mm -hmm. that guides us home. So it, it made a lot of sense to apply that name to this publishing house because it's, in my mind, I always understood the protocol of coming home was to never come home empty handed. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I want to come home and offer these good things that I have collected on the road and well away. And, and Ojisto was a way to bring myself home in a good way to offer these good mm -hmm. things back to community. And so that's, that's how that name serves the publishing house. And also for a way to, for me to say, I, this is what I'm bringing back to, that's to my community. Yeah. In terms of that, we've, we've got Memory Keeper by Don Cheryl Hill coming up. And also, what kinds of manuscripts are you looking for? What do you feel like you've got the fire in the belly for in terms of publishing? Well, of course, more poetry. I mean, yes. you know, the, poet, the poets, I think, need the support out there. Indigenous poets need the support out there for sure. And I know that there has been some, you know, poets in the community, uh, one in particular, who I won't name, um, who's been living at the Landback uh, Lane site and who's, uh, who's been writing, you know, a collection of pieces. My gosh, I wish that collection would come my way and I'll have to check in with that writer to see if, how they feel about that. And I got excited too because there was a, a group that started within community, which is basically people who are telling ghost stories. 
from the territory. Oh, wow. Oh my goodness. I would so love to publish a collection of, of Six Nations ghost stories, you know, like real encounters <laughs> like that just yeah. scare the, you know, scare the pants off you. But again, I'll, I'll have to check back in with the people that facilitate that group to see where they're at with publishing those stories. But yeah, I really came back home to support the writers here and the storytellers here. And then over time, given the success of, of, the, of the publishing house, I'll expand into supporting other um, Indigenous writers. But that's, that's what I'm here to do. That's the mandate. And of course, in terms of being the change that you want to see in the world, the first book out from Ogisto Publishing is your own Ego of a Nation, yes. your, latest, uh, your latest poetry book. So I've been reading you for uh, the better part of two decades. And when I read Ego of a Nation, it struck me as a collection that had a strong sense of drawing the line in terms of violence and, and a violent history, and also writing about living well and reconnecting to uh, indigenous culture. Now, I would say that you've done a, a lot of that for 20 years, but there was something more definite uh, in Ego of a Nation. Now, would you say that's true or is that just my reading? Yeah, no, Tennis, I think you've really nailed it. I mean, I too, I get exhausted by the trauma uh, within our culture and within our experiences and our histories, you know, just as much as anybody else does. And I remember, you know, I always think back to a an interview I did and with John Trudell. He was always saying, "Yeah, man, look," you know, in his way that he would say he he would say, "Yeah, man, we can get really, really knocked down by the political energy if you stay there for too long." writing is a political act and what we write about is a political act and all of these things and if but if you stay there too long it really will deplete your energy so let's let's think of ways that we can say what we need to say that is creative because the creative energy replenishes you you know so if we kind of lean more into the creative energy of, of how we need to say things then we won't get burnt out you know the, or the chances of getting burnt out are less I think about ways to resist and ways to resist it to me is simply getting out there, be having, creating a beautiful presence with our own bodies and our own words and our own voices and being vigilant in creating that presence. And in that way, we can't go overlooked. We can't be overlooked. Just saying, hey, we know we're beautiful. We know we have beautiful voices. We know that what we do is a beautiful and important thing. If it's important to us, it's going to be important to you. If you value quote unquote Canadian history, then mm -hmm. you have definitely got to be part of that, you know, for that, sure. That voice in that history. It's a philosophy, yes, but it's actually, it's also a, a, a truism. It's yeah. like the way I resist is I am, I'm visually native. I create a presence just by being in places, you know, uh, <laughs> as, as a visual, as a visually native, you know, recognizable native person. So the more I can do that online, on the airwaves, physically on, this, on the land, in the streets and resistance movements and so on and so forth, then I will do that because it's, it's about consistency. It's about being vigilant and making space for more of that as well. To me, that's, that's how I operate. That's the foundation from where I operate as, a, as an artist, as a as a native person, as a native woman, that, that will help all of the movements that I write about. And also writing about love and love and acceptance of oneself. 
there's that is very, very much an important part of producing a positive presence for ourselves, for our community, for our, you know, the territories that we come from. And I think that's, that's what I've been kind of working on all of these years, living away from home and kind of learning how to do that in all of the travels and then bringing it back home. So it's, it sounds like a grandiose thing, and, but it's been part of the plan the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now, speaking of bringing the grandiose right down to the work itself, I'm going to ask you to read from the collection. Yes, let's do that. I'm going to start with a, a piece called Eyes Darting. I think, you know, one of the, the ways to combat racism and things like that is to connect. And so this is a poem about connecting even though it's called eyes darting. Memories are mental landmines, opening pathways towards unexplored avenues of self. Disconnection is normalized, eyes darting, hiding histories of the whole preoccupied territorial disruptions. What do all the apologies add up to for you? Do you see yourself in the reflective skin of others? Can we all calibrate cultivated relationships that put us in place, front line facing? Or is this theater curated by producers, activism, so popular numbers and noise? I am waiting for the poets to join, remind us what we do is for the greater good. Let the shrapnel of language become embedded in us. Travel to vital organs where it originated. Don't be afraid. Don't turn away. And please try to be patient. It's about connecting. Indeed, indeed. I, you know, I, I love, I love the fact that you reference a kind of production of culture as well, a kind of theatrical production, that you're waiting for the poets to join, right? Yeah, we, you know, like we see a lot of activism now, currently, even in the pandemic, you know, maybe more so in the pandemic. And it seems like there's a template to it. And I have to question, I look out and I see what's happening and um, the way that it goes down, it, it's very formulamatic almost, you know, because we do it again and again. So of course, I want to think about what are some of the other ways that we can have a presence, voice what we need to, to create different results. You know, it's something uh, I feel younger writers ask me about a lot, like how they can have activism in a frame that they can reuse, but remain authentic. Right. And it's, it's, it's a very good question. It's a really good yeah. question. Yeah, it is a good question. I don't know. As an artist, I always, again, I want to just keep it with the creative, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Promote that. Keep promoting that. And we've got longer poems in this collection, like the title poem, Ego of a Nation, and uh, Spirit of Rage, which has a fantastic video that goes with it, and Zero Culture Shock, which I think is a poem that you wrote when we were both in Dublin for that poetry conference a couple of years ago. And each of these longer poems takes up the layers of colonialism and anti-Indigenous violence and filters them through the fact that you are present as that literary auntie, that there's a sense of care in all of these poems, especially since they call out racist practices, and particularly since they reach for the spirits for some lost young Indigenous people who were, in some cases, injured and and murdered by colonialism. There's a great line that I want to quote 
from you. It's always great to quote the writer to herself. <laughs> and this is from uh, Who's Who. How old were you when you realized the adults don't know what they were doing? And when did that knowing extend to governments and religion? Right. I love that, that question. How old were you when you had to lose that particular kind of child's view of the world? Right. Right. I want to invite you to, to read, uh, read again. And I think you're going to read from fear. Is that right? Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Fear. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And it, it is the basis for a lot of nonsense. To fear is to live half a life. Confidence and common sense complete heals doubt right out of the room. Conflicts inside us come out as noise when not confronted. Voice, both choice and blessing, gracious compliment to work the words, even if they are insufficient. Be still, I tell myself, have patience. But it is the young one inside me who never left the one who makes me playful, gleeful, I can never forget her. She is patting her foot with impatience. I hold her in her place. I make room for those who follow as they have made a place for me, open and welcoming. I am listening to their voices say the same things in new ways, less fear, at least fear lived differently. I love that final line, fear lived differently. Yeah. And to me, that's such a homecoming poem, right? So if, the, with the child self and the adult self and the reference to the other children as well, that it's, it's part of coming back to home, right? Is rethinking, yeah. rethinking all of oneself. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think of fear as a motivator or anger as a motivator, you know, it's very, it validates, validates that energy. What we do with it then, you know, is up to us and how it's a choice what you do with that energy after you experience it is really it's it, that becomes the choice of you know how you shape yourself and carry on how you choose to use it is part of that i think of fear as being the basis of white supremacy because white supremacy is is being sold to us as pride culture yep. pride, but it's it has nothing to do with pride it yep. has everything to do with fear and yep. i you know i just really kind of want to promote that distinction to say, I call bullshit on what they're trying to prop those movements up with. And it certainly has nothing to do with pride. It has everything to do with disappointment as well. You know, their disappointment, they've been sold a bill of goods um, through nationalism, which represents something that they're not able to attain. Yeah, but it's a, it's a concept and not a truism, right? Exactly, and it's exactly. supported by the patriarchy, supported yes. by capitalism, right? What people are entitled to, right? Yeah, or, or feel that they're entitled yeah. to, right? And yeah. so, yeah, yeah. So it's true. Yeah. People have been sold a bill of goods, right? You get it. And, and so we see, you know, that fear and that frustration and disappointment played out in really horrible, dangerous, fatally dangerous ways. Uh, Colton Bushi you know, being murdered because someone thinks that they're so entitled that they have the right to do that. And then it's supported by the Canadian court system, which then brings us to the title of the book, Ego of a Nation. The ego of this nation is played out and supported through the Canadian court system. Yep. Yeah. 
What have you heard about the play that was done at uh, in Saskatchewan? I believe it's called Reasonable Doubt, and uh, Yvette Nolan was was in dramaturging it with two other people. Yeah, that came up, gosh, soon after the acquittal in 2017. Yes. Yeah. And I didn't hear too much more about it other than that Colton Bushy's mother attended one of the uh, performances, you know, and she walked out and she left and she didn't say much. I mean, if you can imagine, and, and I can imagine, I'm focusing my creative voice on that instance because I can relate. You know, uh, my sister was murdered in 2013 in Chicago the person who murdered her, everyone seemed to know who it was and we know who it was, but they were never brought to justice. Justice, you know. I'm, I'm um, very sorry to hear that. That's, yeah. that's so, terrible. I mean, so I'm not, I'm just not, you know, dipping in like a tourist into someone else's trauma mm-hmm. and pain. Right. I'm, I'm thinking about how I relate to, to what that family is experiencing and, and my family is experiencing it. What does one do with that? And what does one do with that time and again? Yeah, because it doesn't go away, right? No, it it doesn't go away and it happens again, like as in the last poem I read, fear, fear experienced differently. It's going to be the same emotion done, experienced in a different way. So that's been my experience. And that's how I'm processing that for myself as well. I'm looking at that injustice. What do you do with the frustration of that injustice? Well, as a poet, I can use my superpowers as a poet and, and tell you all about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, oh. and, and, and put something out in the world that speaks to that reality in this time. Because as, you know, as poets, that's always what I think that we do as poets and artists is we create these markers in time. So that when uh, future generations look back and they go, hey, you know, what were, what were you thinking about? What were they writing about? What was the focus back then? Well, this was the focus, you know? It's like, yeah. it's what we do with, you know, like with the writers from the 60s, we look back and say, hey, what were you talking about? They were talking about anti-war stuff, talking about women's liberation. Yep. They were talking about the pill, talking about sexual liberation, all of that stuff, so... That's what I want to know. And that's what I think is valuable for me to put out into the world now. Yeah, indeed. Now, speaking of what you're putting out into the world now, you know, in some ways, it's a strange thing to ask of someone who just moved home, just started a press and just wrote a book. But of course, I have to ask as a as a as an interviewer, I have to ask you what else you're working on now. Also, I know you're someone who works on dozens of projects at once. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about what you're working on on now. Can you say? Yeah. Excellent. I like the way you asked that question. <laughs> it's like, where do I begin? Well, I'll tell you one thing I want to talk about is... Um, So, you know, when we first started chatting, we were talking about doubling down on joy and, you know, bringing projects in together. And so uh, what I've done is I've brought my love and passion for radio, my love and passion for writing, and my love and passion for production work together. And uh, so I'm writing, I'm currently um, writing a proposal to APTN uh, for a web series 
about native radio. So ah. it's a comedy series. Hopefully it's comedy. I mean, you never can tell, but you know, I've got writers, you know, to kind of help it be funny. And uh, this, <laughs> these writers are in, are based in Toronto. They're actually a, a native female comedy troupe called Manifest Destiny's Child. And <laughs> I'm on the right track there. And, um, so the, the premise of the series is, you know, a, a, a struggling res radio station. The uh, explanation of, you know, all the nuances within a native radio station, how it operates, how it helps to create identity and maintain identity of a certain community. There's, it's pretty funny stuff. So anyways, the web series is uh, it's just a short little web series of 10 episodes of, you know, nine to 12 minutes each called Indians on the Airwaves. I'm just working on that now and it's it's been very stressful but i have like got great support from big soul production native owned and operated production company well versed in how to do the make these proposals and do them well so that's what i'm working on and yeah, <laughs> so and if, if if all the stars line up and everything you know and the the sun rises and sets in just the right way then we'll be in production for this summer that's fantastic. And you, you can tell by my reaction that I love that, that name of that comedy troupe is so funny um, and so right on. I noticed that when I was looking at your SoundCloud account that uh, you did some work uh, with uh, a project called Indians on the Airwaves when you were uh, in Victoria. What's yeah. the relationship between these two projects? Indians on the Airwaves is just one of those things that, I, that started out as a six-part radio documentary series about the history, the contemporary history of Native radio. Because a lot of people don't know, you know, that we've been on the airwaves for a long time. We've got some history that we can talk about. So... That was a wonderful project to work on and connect with, you know, the people who are making radio now and who used to make radio before. And then Indians on the Airwaves became the title of the short experimental video doc that Jackson Two Bears and I created. And then now I'm just transferring that title over to this web series. And I just don't see any limit with it. It's like, yeah, I want to do Indians on the Airwaves, the Broadway musical. Yes, I want to do <laughs> Indians on the Airwaves, you know, the whatever, you know, the products, the t-shirts, the what have you. I just don't see any limit with that. And I'm just having fun with it. You know, I'm having fun. Yeah. The process of doing, you know, that production paperwork is stressful, but when we, hopefully when we get to uh, shoot the, the series, it'll be more fun. That's what I'm really holding out for. <laughs> And, and of course, one of the the uh, series that this will inevitably be compared to is the Dead Dog Cafe, right? On on CBC, exactly. right? Exactly. Yes, I, I made reference to Dead Dog Cafe as like I hope because it was originally the proposal was originally for a podcast with CBC Jam, and you know I, you can't make a proposal like that without you know referencing Dead Dog Cafe, Thomas King. And we got the funding to create the audio pilot, which we did over the last summer, but we didn't get the series funding for it. So I thought, well, I think I'm going to pivot and try to create a web series for APTN, which had their calls for proposals out. And I thought, well, let's, let's give this a try. And luckily, Big Soul wanted to help with that. And again, you know, I cannot thank them enough for backing me because I certainly wouldn't be able to do that on my own. I've never written a uh, television or web series proposal before. So, so the learning curve is steep, my friend. <laughs> and, and I've been climbing it. But, but So we'll see. Like I said, if all the stars line up, we'll be shooting in August of uh, 2021. And hopefully it'll all turn out like that. 
see, I had a, I, I had a suspicion that all of those references to theater in the, in Ego of the Nation had another had another uh, yes. way that it would be manifest, indeed. Yes. And uh, you know, I, I I'm very intrigued with the fact that you're writing comedy because you've certainly written irony into your poems, that, oh. that kind of comedy for a long time. But this definitely seems to be a, a different kind of uh, register entirely. I mean, yeah. I mean, Tannis. I mean, the, you know, you're you're now doing a podcast thing, and that's a, maybe new for you. Like there was yep. a new curve to learn there. So I mean, yeah, as as artists and just as humans, I think you know let's keep our lives interesting. Let's keep it interesting for ourselves, if nothing else, by learning new skills and doing these things. And it is, it's, it's stressful, you know, it's, it's difficult. And, uh, made more stressful by the times we're, you know, experiencing all together now. But and again, it's about keeping ourselves employed as well. Indeed. You know, like, let's not, you know, kid ourselves there. No, no, of course, of course. <laughs> and uh, will you read us one more thing? Of course. So one of the things besides the gardening that will soon be in full bloom. I join a uh, Wednesday night writing group. And this is a, a throwback from the people I've made friends with in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, and yeah. I have like a little art family down there. And I really, really value that group of people. They're called Alas de Agua. So the water people, uh, artists of the water. They have been doing hosting a Wednesday night writing group. And sometimes, you know, you come out with some gems out of that writing group. So this is one of the gems that came out of the writing group uh, talking about a throwback time from when I was a, a teenager called Anarchy Man. <laughs> Anarchy Man. When I was just a sweet teen with senses stretching, taking in, taking it all in, sounds of the 80s, especially new wave radio, Devo and Blondie, punk rock sex pistols, a new movement for the ugly. It was a good cause to cut my hair, dress in nothing but black, dance like a pogo stick, slam into each other's embrace, stage diving angels floated above overzealous crowds, angry bands vomit singing into shitty sound systems. It wasn't hate, it was love, acceptance, and tolerance. Safety for some and from inside the circle, loud and sweaty, it was free and I was lucky. It was so fun until the Nazis showed up. When I was young, I didn't want to be me until I did. And the deeper the self-discovery, the more I fell in love. The artist portal opened. Walking through, I found my tribe, my childhood, dreams realized. I didn't need the uniform, but I learned the language of poetry and paint. The music stuck to me like colorful tattoos. So fluid the time, and the labels were just placeholders. No one waving a finger of shame in your face, just chaos and lots of it. Anarchy, man, and I was there for it. <laughs> Punk rock days. <laughs> totally recalls my misspent youth. There you I go. <laughs> there you go. I knew it, Tannis. I knew it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Disguised as a mild mannered professor, but you know. <laughs> I love that line. I didn't want to be me until I did. Until I did. High school is so, you know, it's so crappy. Like high school is so, so bad for some people. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just Could didn't you? fit in until, you know, until I realized, oh my God, like, you know, it's all right. I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You were more than all right. 
we're coming to the end of our time, but I have a final question and it's going to yeah. come back to this, this um, literary auntie slash writer slash performer slash producer. Uh, you're, you're becoming this true Renaissance woman as you have come home and uh, not empty handed. If you could name something like one thing that is your legacy, we want your legacy to be as this kind of mentoring uh, auntie figure, what would, you, what would you say that is? Oh, wow, that's a good one. You know, I'm always talking about um, the poetry circle and I would love it if, and I don't even need to be responsible for this, but like, I really just really wanna see that circle expand. You know, I just wanna see all the voices in that circle, everybody represented in that circle. And, you know, for us to keep growing the craft like, you know, exploring what else we can do with this poetry. It's so beautiful. It's so, it's so creative. And I, do, I really don't think we've, we've found the, the limits. You know, we haven't found the, the parameters of that. I think it's still expanding on itself. And that was one of the reasons why I really embraced spoken word because there, there wasn't a finite definition around what it was. We were defining it by doing it. And that's kind of what I want to see happen with the poetry circles. I want to see us to keep defining what it is by doing it. Expand. That's what I want to see. Excellent. Thanks so much. Now, I want to thank you for talking to me today. And I want to make sure uh, that before we finish, that people know how to get the book with this beautiful cover of Ego uh, of a Nation and also how to contact you at Ojisto Publishing. Yeah, luckily I had a um, digital branding artist who I was working with through a youth um, placement uh, program. And uh, I had, I was got to work with them for three months. And in that time we made the website. So Ojisto, you know, triple dub, ojistopublishing.com is where you can find the website. And uh, all of the, the contact information is there as well. Through the digital branding uh, youth placement person, they created a, a Instagram account for me and a Twitter account for the Ojisto Publishing. So yeah, I'm well represented on all of those social platforms. And I had a little separation anxiety when she finished her placement because I was like, oh my God, what do I do? Now <laughs> it's just you. Young people, <laughs> young people are so adept, eh? Like they're, yep. so, they're so adept at all that <laughs> trickery stuff, that social media trickery stuff. If you just uh, type in Ojisto Publishing, it's O-J-I-S-T-O-H, I believe, uh, publishing, then something's going to come up. You know, it'll be either the website or the, or the Twitter or what have you. And that's where you can order Ego of a Nation, two yes. other of your books, and of course, where eventually people can find Memory Keeper by yes. Don Cheryl Hill. Yes. And also, uh, I will add that that's also a very good source uh, to see a couple of Janet's videos. So if you have been wanting to see, you know, radio is a, a hard place to see things, but if you've been wanting to see them, they're all at uh, Ojisto Publishing. Janet Rogers, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Watershed Riders. It's been a delight to have a, a chance to have a long talk with you. Yeah, thank you, Tannis. Yeah, thank you so much again. Was in Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thank you. Watershed Riders is produced by Francis Roberts Riley with technical production by Brendan Highmore. Our first season is hosted by CKWR 98.5 in Waterloo Region with support from Region of Waterloo Arts Fund and in partnership with Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. Our theme music is Water 
by Alicia Brilla from her album, Rooted. What are we gonna-